<clears throat> Thank you, Gerard. Yeah, uh, one of the things they say here is we must always introduce ourselves for all the newcomers, you know. So I'm Francois van der Walt, I'm an elder here, and uh, it's my privilege to bring you a sermon this morning. It was written originally by Reverend John de Woog, and it's actually a series, and it's about the book of Daniel. So I thought, when I say the book of Daniel, I know some of you say, oh, know it, I've learned it when I was young. So I thought, I'll just ask you, and now that we don't online anymore, I can even walk into the, and make eye contact with you, you know? Okay, so the question is, what do you remember from the book of Daniel? Just quick little answers. He devoted himself to God. Short answers. Yep. What, did you, what do you remember offhand? The book of Daniel. The lion's den. Obviously, I wish there was kids. They would have barked that one out immediately. What else do you remember? The book of Daniel. What story are you going to tell, Karen? The, the fire and the furnace where they were rescued. You had a chance already. Someone else. What do you remember? The book of Daniel. Now, I want you to ask me, what do I remember the book of Daniel? Mate, I applied for a preaching license in this denomination, and one of the chapters they gave me was Daniel 8. I want you to go and read it when you get home. It's got nothing to do with the Daniel I know, because it's visions and visions on visions that he saw and he wrote up, and it's absolutely amazing, and that's actually what make me think, maybe I should do a whole series on the whole book of Daniel. Why just focus on one chapter? So here it comes. Fortunately, uh, it was written before, so I can just come off that. So the question with the book of Daniel is actually not that he's done all these amazing things and so on, but yes, it does have a very clear focus on prayer. If you read time and time again, Daniel becomes before a challenge, and then he's praying, and God is answering that prayer. And sometimes the challenge is, the kings of the time said to him, Daniel, you're not allowed to pray. Guess what he does? He goes and pray. And he gets punished, and then he pray. And then the punishment is not as severe as one would have thought. So Daniel, in my view, stands out as prayer. Why do I like talking about praying? Well, it's one of the three or four things that's identified in our congregation that's key. Prayer was one. The other one was fellowship. Another one was worship. And another one was outreach. Now, there are some people that say, so what have you done about it? Now, I've preached about all of those things from time to time. We've got a prayer meeting set up. We're discussing the sermons on Tuesday nights, as you heard. So, and I'm asking anyone that says to me, you know, we'd like to pray. I'd, I'd like you to ask me that question. I say, yep, there's a prayer meeting. And then you say, when? And then I'm going to say, six o'clock on a Sunday morning. And you're going to say, oh, phew, that doesn't suit me. You know what I'm going to ask you? What time suits you? I'll meet you for prayer anytime, any day. Three o'clock in the morning works well for me. So please have a clear understanding of how we've progressed. The people that's working on the new 
view of how we're going forward, they're coming back to very similar answers as, as what we have already. We all know we have to focus on prayer. But let's look how Daniel has done it. So it starts, this sermon starts off with a question, what kind of God do you serve? And it makes the distinction, there's two types of God. One God that created the universe and he winded up like a clock and then he stood back and now it all evolves going on and on and on and on. And then there's another type of God that's intimately involved with everything that happens. The one, there's a term for it, it's called deist. Now it's not an acronym, it's just the full word, deist, okay? And the other one is a theist, the one that believes that God is intimately involved with every aspect of our life day by day. A God that answers our prayers and so on. Now I'm sure all of you sit there and say, we're theists, mate, we're not deists. But then I ask you, are you? If you're sick or have some difficulty, what's the first thing that comes up in your mind? Is the first thing that comes up, let's pray about this leg that's sore? Or is the first thing, I wonder where I've put the, the things I can rub on? And can I get a doctor's appointment? Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but what is the first thing of what we rely on? And I can tell you now, read the news, we rely on education. We rely on scientists that give us good answers. And only sort of later on, as a little bit of something that you can just smear on, yep, we rely on God, let's pray about it. So you need to ask yourself this. Now the book of Daniel demands of us that we must be theists, people that believe that God is involved in our lives from day to day. It's not very obvious from the book of Daniel, and I'm going to read from Daniel 1, verse 1 and 2. And it's going to be up there, and me and, and uh, Maria has actually talked about it, you know, whether we should actually put the words up there or actually ask people to actually look it up in the Bible. So this is an introduction to the book of Daniel, and I'm just going to read you the first two verses. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and put in the treasure house of his God. That's about 600 years before Jesus came. The king of Babylon came, and he literally destroyed more or less Judah, and he took all the things that's precious to God and go and put it in his God's temple in Babylon. And the rest of the chapter talk about, he also took Daniel and his, Daniel's three friends with him to serve in his kingdom. Now, if we talk of theists, people that believe in God being involved in their lives from day to day, it's not very obvious from the way the book of Daniel starts. And you've just heard me reading it. Not only were the temple articles taken to Babylonia, so were the cream of the Jewish society, including the king and the royal family, and also Daniel and his friends. Can you imagine that, being cast off as a young person into a foreign land? And when you get there, not only are you in this foreign land, 
you get taken to the king's palace and said, actually, this is where you're going to live. I think they must have been seriously scared. And what will God do in this situation? How will Daniel and his friends survive? It's obvious, isn't it? That the deist will never survive. Somebody that believes that God just is a, made a clock and he wind it up and it's now running. That's just inevitable. You're doomed if this happens. Nominalism won't work, will it? Daniel is in a situation. It's all or nothing. Either cling with all faith to God who can make a difference, to a God who is sovereign, to a God who makes no sense to pray or otherwise just throw it all aside. It would make sense to pray to that God. Otherwise, just leave it. There's no room for deism in Babylon. There's no room for God who is absent, uninvolved, at a distance. Such a God is of no value. It's all or nothing now. Is Daniel's situation different from ours? Australia is a little bit like Babylon, isn't it? Not that Australia is a world power that dominates everyone else. No. I mean that Australia is surely a place where it makes no sense to be a deist, someone that believes in a distant God. What's the use of having some fuzzy idea about a God who might have made everything but who now stays away and just let us get on with it? That kind of religion is of no value at all. No, a deist idea of God is useless in Australia today, in your life. You may as well not have any religion whatsoever if that is your take on God. The book of Daniel calls us, and it's using this Australian thing that I'm starting to adapt. The book of Daniel calls us to be fair dinkum. Fair dinkum about the truth of God. It's an all or nothing call. In the book of Daniel, we are in Babylon six centuries before. In the book of Daniel, we are in Babylon six centuries before Christ. We are in exile with God's people. God's people have been defeated and dragged out of their promised land, leaving behind a heap of ruins. The book of Daniel is set in the time of the greatest defeat and anguish for God's people. And yet, God does amazing things. Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego, and I'm sure all of you spent long times as children to know those three words. I had to relearn it when I started talking in English because it's different than Afrikaans. But they are saved from the fiery, fiery furnace by the fourth man. Somebody mentioned it. A hand appeared. Nobody mentioned that. A hand appeared right on the wall that tells Babylon that the end is near. Daniel survives a spell in a lion's den. What is the point of these stories? What has God given us these stories to read? Why did he give it to us? The first two verses of chapter 1 of Daniel set the agenda for the whole book. There are two ways of looking at life or reading history. There's the human point of view that just deals with the what happened, where did it happen, when did it happen, who did it happen to, and then there's God's view. And if you look, and if you were in the situation of Daniel, 
That whole situation would not have made sense. Why would God allow Babylon, the king of Babylon, to come and destroy Judah and take the very sacred things from God's temple and put it in the God's temple? It doesn't make sense, does it? It's a big question, you know, what does God allow and what does God do? And what happens even though God doesn't want to allow it? But it doesn't make sense if you're a theist. God is in absolute control of everything. Throughout the Bible, there's two cities that get described. The one is Jerusalem and the other one is Babylon. And right through the Bible, these two cities are pictured. And, it, and then it comes eventually to a conclusion in Revelation 18, which tells what is the ultimate, what's ultimately going to happen to Babylon on the one hand and Jerusalem on the other hand. In Revelation 21 it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, because the first heaven and the first earth has gone away, and even the sea was removed. And then John described another part of the vision, and he said, I saw a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And it was beautiful. It was like a bride dressed to meet a bridegroom. And I saw Babylon being cast into a fiery lake. You can go and read it in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. So in this new Jerusalem, in this new city where you and me are heading for, God is going to be there, and he's going to live among us. And that is the end of or the, the beginning for Jerusalem and the end of Babylon. Jerusalem stands for the people of God in permanent covenant relationship with God. Babylon stands for all of God's enemies. And one day, Jerusalem will be victorious and Babylon will be completely destroyed. But now, in this part of the history, what happens when Babylon defeats Jerusalem? How do God's people cope when it seems that God himself has been defeated? You see, here's a great question for the book of Daniel. Babylon has come and besieged Jerusalem and defeated her. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has taken the temple vessels from the temple of God and set them up in the temple of his own God, Marduk. The Lord of God of Israel has been defeated. His people are in captivity. His symbols are on display in a pagan temple. What can the Lord do? Can he fight against the super God and superpowers? Or has his time, God's time, come to end? Will the people of God survive? Or is it time to give up old-time religion and old ways and embrace the brave new world? It's a question for us, isn't it? There are two ways of looking at life, of looking at history. The human viewpoint, Babylon has taken Jerusalem. God's people have been defeated. God seemed to have been defeated. How can we sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land? How can we live as God's people when we're in exile? The book of Hebrews teaches us 
that we have to live like exiles, refugees. 1 Peter 1 describes us as strangers in this world, exiles in a foreign land. In that sense, we are like Daniel. How can we sing the Lord's songs and live as the Lord's people here as exiles in a foreign land? Chris, is there echo booming sound coming from the sound, or is it just my left ear? That's one theory. <laughs> you should have said, let's pray about it, mate. <laughs> okay. The first two verses of Daniel begin to answer these questions. Remember the two ways of looking the human point of view and God's view. Oh man, technology. I can vouch for it that Gerard did pray for the technology this morning just before the service. So I'm expecting God to answer his prayer any moment now. So the book of Daniel, how do we define this book of Daniel? On the one hand, it's the story of these two kingdoms. And at this point in time, the, un, the Babylon has actually won. It looks to us like that. But in reality, God is faithful to his word. Always, no matter what. These happenings were already predicted a long time ago in Isaiah 39 verse 6 to 7 it was already predicted and the Lord of history God has already foretold through Isaiah what would take place so now it's just happening and even before that actually the word of the Lord about the destruction of Jerusalem goes back another thousand years back to the days of Moses listen to his word in Deuteronomy 28 45 to 52 all these curses will come upon you because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly. Therefore, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from, from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down. So God, the theist God, is in control of history. And he knew that this was going to happen. So that is the background of the book of Daniel. How could Daniel calmly continue to pray to God, knowing that if he were caught, he would be thrown into the den of lions? How could Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand up to Nebuchadnezzar and refuse to bow to an idol, knowing that if they didn't worship the idol, they would be thrown into the fiery furnace. And this is the title of the sermon, actually. How can God's people sing the Lord's song in a foreign world land? How can we, as strangers and exiles in the world, with our citizenship in heaven, sing the Lord's song and live as the Lord's people in a hostile world? How can we remain faithful even when our world has collapsed around us 
and it seems that God has been defeated and can do and can do nothing. How can we continue to trust in God in the face of personal tragedy or a national crisis? And I'm sure you're unaware of any national crises right now across the world. We can live this way by remembering two principles. History is not accidental. To be clear, COVID-19 is not an accident. It is in God's control. He is never taken by surprise because he controls the surprises. God is always faithful to his word, always, no matter what. Why did God send the people of Israel into exile in Babylon? One answer is that he had to punish their sins, and that answer is true. So the first principle is God is in absolute control. The second principle, and it's another answer, that that answer is that unless they, Daniel and his people, have gone into exile, there would never have been a faithful remnant to carry on as God's people. There would never have been a faithful people amongst whom the Lord Jesus Christ would be born. So Daniel and his three friends, the very reason they had to be taken into exile is so that God can destroy Judah completely. But the remnant, Daniel and three friends, is left behind to make sure Jesus Christ can be born from that line, in line with God's promise from Genesis. The nation of Judah was finished as a nation. The weight of her sins had dragged her down past the point of no return. There was no hope for her. God destroyed the nation so that individual faithful people, a remnant of peoples who continued to call upon the Lord, might survive. In this way, God prepared the world for the coming of the Savior. His son, Jesus Christ. The sacking of Jerusalem was an act of judgment. I knew you wouldn't know the word. But it was also an act of grace. History is never accidental. God is always at work. And God is always faithful to his word. Always. He has promised that a descendant of David would come to be the savior of his people. And in sending the people into exile, he was working towards the fulfillment of that promise. Here is the focus. It's the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. One day, the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven. And all of God's enemies, the great Babylon of Revelation 18, will finally be defeated. You know this will happen. God has promised it. And he has given you a preview in the book of Revelation. History is never accidental. So by all means, look at COVID and look at the course and try and figure out whether it was China or whether it was America that planted it in China or try and figure that out. By all means, do it. But know in the back of your mind, it, all history is in God's control. In the darkest times, God is at work. 
God sent great distress among his people, Israel, at the time of Daniel, to punish them for their sins. But he also sent that distress so that Jesus Christ could come and be the giver of true life to his people. As we're going to go through the book of Daniel together and find this God of Daniel, a God that's in charge of history and is ever faithful to his word, find the God of Daniel in Jesus Christ. He is calling his people and us to trust him. He is trustworthy. He is Daniel's God. Is he calling you? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're the God of history, that you're the God that's almighty and all-powerful and that everything is in your hands. Lord, and we place ourselves in your hands and we pray that you just hold us, that you comfort us, but Lord, at the same time, that you teach us to pray, that you teach us what it is to trust you ultimately. Lord, we, we as a congregation, feel so small in this world. We sometimes feel so powerless of all the things that's happening around us, not by our doing. Will you let us see the history unfold where you will come again? Will you let us clearly see you busy preparing a place for each one of us and then we can look forward to the day where we can worship you day and night from the light that comes from you directly. Where we can wash ourselves in the river of life and eat from the trees of life. We thank you for your clear promises. Will you help each one of us to heed to the call to pray to truly stand before you with believing hearts and pray. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.